Hi, Wilson. Could you describe yourself in three words? You mean words like leader, thinker, and humble? <laughs> no, <Sure>. no, no. <laughs> Let's not do those words. I've got three words: sunny side up. Ah, <laughs> like an egg. <laughs> like an egg, whatever it is. Like I always say, there's always a silver lining somewhere. Love it. Number two. Can you tell us a dad joke? So many. Let me tell you a joke. My favorite one was actually told by my daughter. She has the habit of making me birthday cards. She would draw them herself, and she she did one that said, uh, yeah, "Happy birthday, Dad! You've been like a father to me." <laughs> <laughs> I want to be friends with your daughter. <laughs> that was my favorite. I have that hang in the office. It, it just it just keeps you grounded. <laughs> And for the record, she's my flesh and blood. And number three, what is one random thing that you wish more people knew? I don't know if I wish they knew that, but、uh, I was a collegiate tennis player. Cool. I finally got on the tennis team at my school after a rash of injuries, and、uh, I was clearly the worst player. I was a bench warmer. Got off the bench every once in a while. But I was able to say I was on the tennis team, and it was literally the worst. <laughs> Tennis team that our school SMU had had for a couple of generations, so we finished number eleven in the country. Hey, you were on the team. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're on the team. <laughs> the Harvard Association for Law and Business, or HALB. It's one of the biggest, busiest student organizations at Harvard Law School. Our club's mission is to connect Harvard students with leaders at the intersection of law and business. At school, we regularly organize events with CEOs, general counsels, corporate lawyers, bankers, investors, entrepreneurs, and so on. But our goal is not just limited to meeting leaders. We're also very focused on how our generation of law students can grow into and become leaders. And that's why we decided to start this podcast. If you are a current law student or even a pre-law student, the Help Leadership Podcast is dedicated to you. It's dedicated to you, to your success, and to your growth into a leader in the legal profession and beyond. So, hello and welcome to the Help Leadership Podcast. I'm a Harvard Law School student, Help Board member, and your host, Genevieve Antono. Hey everyone! Welcome back to the Help Leadership Podcast. Today's episode is with one of my mentors, Wilson Chu. Basically, if you are interested in mergers and acquisitions, or if you are an Asian American lawyer, there is a pretty good chance that you would have met Wilson, or you know who he is. In the M and A world, Wilson is very much a thought leader. He is the chair of the American Bar Association's M and A committee. And he was one of the masterminds behind the ABA's very influential M&A deal point studies. He was also the founding co-chair of the University of Texas M&A Institute, the founding chair of the Asia M&A Forum in Hong Kong, and the founding chair of the M&A section of the Dallas Bar Association. He also teaches M&A at the School of Law at SMU, the Southern Methodist University. So, if you are in the M&A world, Wilson is kind of hard to ignore. And if you are an Asian American attorney, 
Wilson is also kind of hard to ignore. He is very involved in leadership roles at NAPABA, the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association. For example, he founded NAPABA's Partners Committee, co-founded their Best Lawyers Under 40 Award, and this one is my personal favorite, Wilson and his friend Don Liu, the chief legal officer at Target, founded NAPABA's in-house counsel network and the 20 by 20 challenge, which aimed to put 20 Asian Americans in the general counsel seat of Fortune 500 companies by the year 2020. It is, of course, the year 2020 now, and they have since met and surpassed their goal. In today's episode of the Help Leadership Podcast, Wilson and I talk about a lot of things. We talk about M&A, leadership, authenticity, career development tips for Asian American law students, and so, so much more. So we've got a lot of substantive content. I think M&A geeks in particular are going to love it. So let's just dive right in. All right. Are you ready? Let's go. The cost of producing Season 1 of the HELP Leadership Podcast is generously sponsored by the international law firm Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett. Headquartered in New York, Simpson is home to more than 900 lawyers in 10 offices around the world. The firm prides itself on providing leading-edge development and training to the next generation of lawyers. To learn more about Simpson's summer program or 1L diversity program, visit stblaw.com. Simpson has no influence or control over the content of this podcast, and each speaker's opinions are their own. Hi, Wilson. Before we jump into your career, can you tell us a little bit about your background? So where did you grow up and what motivated you to go to law school? I was born in Hong Kong, and I came over here with my mother, I didn't have much of a choice. I was only a four-year-old, so I came with her. My father had passed away. So my mother decided to take her widow self and uh, six kids from 14 to four to the land of opportunity. And uh, she brought all of us, not knowing anybody, with all of $200 in her purse. And we came straight to Dallas because you, at that time you had to have a sponsor. You know, I grew up in Dallas, played tennis growing up, not very well. And then I went to SMU for undergraduate, and then uh, I was a finance major at SMU. And what motivated me to go to law school, my brother was in law school as well, but what really motivated me was uh, with a finance degree, I had no one telling me what I could do with it. So all I knew is that if I'd graduate with a finance degree, I would spend the rest of my life making boat loans. I didn't want to do that, so I went to law school to try to hide out. And so what was your law school experience like? And how did you decide to become a corporate lawyer? And how did you choose your practice? My law school experience was actually kind of fun. Going through high school and college, I'm just like everyone else, just kind of bumbling along. And then for some reason, I did pretty well in law school. And that was really the first time I, someone said, hey, you're pretty smart. So <laughs> couldn't figure that one out. But anyway, I had a lot of fun, uh, made some very good friends. To this day, we are still friends. And then I decided to become a corporate lawyer because I just really wanted to leverage off of my finance background. And the idea of going to law school was just to hide out, check things out, and maybe practice law a little bit, and then go back into business in some form or fashion. As you can tell, I never made it out. (laughs) 
of the law. <laughs> Speaking of your practice, your practice focuses on mergers and acquisitions, joint ventures, and other strategic transactions. I got that description from your website. And so our yeah. audience is basically made up of law and also pre-law students. What are M&A, JVs, and strategic transactions? At its very most basic level, it's about putting people together. Whether it's a company, one company buying another one, which is a merger or an acquisition, or someone collaborating with someone else, which generally would be called a joint venture, or some other type of strategic transaction Strategic transactions, basically anything other than a merger, acquisition, or joint venture. It's just something where companies want to get together and figure out how to do business, whether, for example, on the pharma side, whether it's a pharmaceutical company coming together with a, a startup on some new gene therapy. The pharma doesn't want to buy the new startup because the technology is not proven, but they want a way to support it and also a way to be first in line to exploit the technology. So it's a strategic transaction. Got it, got it. And just so our audience can just kind of visualize this in a more like concrete manner, is there like like a deal or some public deal that you've worked on that you can kind of walk us through so that they can just visualize what an M&A transaction looks like a lot more? The one that people will be most familiar with is uh, we were part of the team for Amazon to acquire Whole Foods. So we were Texas Council because uh, Whole Foods is a Texas incorporated business in Austin and a lot of operations in Austin. So uh, it was us as Texas Council and we were working with uh, you know, lead corporate counsel, which was Solomon Cromwell. I'd get the call from uh, uh, my friend at Sullivan, Krishna Veraragavan, and he says, uh, we're looking at this deal. We want to see if we can get your help. We clear conflicts, and it's Amazon. And the first thing I'm going, why would Amazon buy Whole Foods? As you can see, it was a very, very strategic transaction. And even now in this coronavirus stuff, you see a little bit of the impact of this deal because, because you have delivery from Whole Foods, right? People can order online. You get your food delivered, right? Another example is now I can order something from Amazon, and if I need to return it, I just take it to Whole Foods. I don't have to put it in a box. I don't have to wrap it up or anything. Think about the uh, being green, right? I just show up with my QR code, bang, and then I took a picture of that little kiosk at the Whole Foods market and sent it to the Amazon M&A lawyer that we worked with. And I said, hey, this is really cool. Yeah, I love that. So it's M&A and it's also a strategic transaction. Oh, absolutely. Well, well, yeah, yeah. Well, if you think about it, I mean, look, M&A, joint ventures, it's all about pursuing and executing on a strategy. Think about it just, again, I put it in very basic terms, putting people together, right? In fact, you know, I teach the M&A class at SMU. What I tell the students, as well as the younger associates or anyone else who will listen, is after 30 some odd years of doing this, I've figured out that I can put all of M&A into three circles, you know, like a Venn diagram. If you just remember these three things, you got it. It's all about people, price, and process. So as you're going through your careers, and if you're in the deal world, just think about those three things and see how that fits into what you're doing. And to me, it helps me kind of understand what's going on because, you know, the first thing you do is when a client comes up and says, we want to buy this company, 
as a lawyer, what you want to do is, is, is try to find out why. Why are you buying the company? What is, in big words, what's the strategy behind it? What's the investment thesis, right? But it really boils down to why are you doing this? And if you as a lawyer understand why your client is doing something, it'll help you better execute on that transaction. When you're very junior, how do you figure out the why? Do you just, I I guess, ask the seniors on your team who hopefully have talked to the client? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. You must ask. We're about to kick off a deal in about an hour or so and getting on an all-hands call. And really, the first question is, why are we doing this? What do you want to buy? A lot of times, what happens is that the strategy or corporate development group of a company, they're the people who come up with the idea and find the target and everything. They'll have a deck, right? They have a deck that they need to present to the board of directors so they get approval to pursue the transaction. So as a junior lawyer, ask the associate with whom you're working or even the partner, hopefully, and say, look, why are we doing this? Is there a deck that I could see? Because if you read that deck, it will always tell you why they are doing the deal. What is the strategic fit? What is the opportunity that they're trying to pursue there? I love that you just gave me like a concrete, specific life tip. I'll be asking for the deck. <laughs> you need to do that because as, as a junior associate, you, you want to know why you exist. What's your role in, this, in, the, in the deal, in the world, and everything? And really, it's just finding out why. There's two things you need to think about, right? One is why, why someone's doing something. And the other one is how. And then so lawyers, for the most part, lawyers are involved in the how. Yeah, I want to buy Whole Foods. Okay? The question is, how do we get this done? And then by the time it gets way down to us as the Texas Council, what are the Texas fiduciary duties that are involved in deal protections, right? What's the filing requirements for a certificate of merger in Texas? Those blocking and tackling things are really important because if you do it wrong, you cannot announce your deal, right? (laughs) You can't announce your deal. Guess what? The market says, what the heck's going on, right? Leaks, all this crazy stuff. So learn at at the early outset. Find out the why the deal's being done, what's in the client's head. And then from the legal side, we help them on how to get it done. Mm, I love that. Next question. Is there a certain type of personality that tends to be more attracted to M&A? Do you think that there's something about your personality that makes you a good fit for this practice? The personality trait, I think, that's uh, best fit for the deal practice is a strong sense of optimism. Lawyers, you're in the service business, right? We don't create the deal. We help the clients get the deal done. Again, understanding the why, right? If someone comes in and says, I want to buy this company, right? They have a strategy, they have an investment thesis, or they have a dream, right? You need to understand it. Believe in that dream. Don't be the lawyer that sits there and says, you can't do this, cannot do that, right? That's the doctor knows side. You, you want to be the lawyer that says, we can get that done. There are some hurdles here and there we need to get careful about. Here's how we're going to get this deal done. We work a lot with foreign counsel and other countries and everything. The ones I really cannot stand are the ones that, that just say, no, you can't do that. Well, that's not really helpful, right? You can tell me I can't do it, but why don't you say what I can do to accomplish the same goal? I'll give you a quick example. 
we had a deal where uh, it was a, a Swedish company buying our client, a software company, and they were going to offer stock. And this is the days when everyone thought that the stock was only going to go in one direction up. And then so the targets selling shareholders want stock of the buyer. And we had option holders as well, right? Option holders are people who have a right to buy the stock, but they just haven't exercised it yet. We wanted to give our shareholders, the target shareholders, stock options in the Swedish company buyer. And so we asked Swedish council and they said, well, can we do options? And they go, we don't have options under corporate law in Sweden. We just got to talking about it. We started brainstorming. They said, well, we do have these things called debentures with detachable warrants. If you Google it, a warrant is just another word for an option. So I asked, at what price do you have to issue these warrants? And they said, oh, it could be a penny or something nominal. Nothing. So you can detach them for basically nothing, right? They said, yes. I go, okay, that's a stock option to me. Let's use that, right? That's the kind of lawyer that the client wants, someone who's going to find the solution rather than just say, you can't do that. How do you get there? How do you come up with these like creative ideas? Is it just kind of like experience and seeing more things so that you can come up with more things? Yeah, no, it's really easy, Jeannie. Be curious. Be curious. You ask the question and you say, if you find out what the strategic driver is of the deal, then you could just ask questions. And a lot of times it's a junior lawyer. Here's the hardest part for a junior lawyer is not saying something stupid. And we're all afraid of that. I'm afraid of it. I probably say more stupid things now because I'm older. It doesn't matter. But you sit there. So try this, Jeannie. Instead of saying something, making a statement, why don't you ask a smart question that makes it sound like you know the answer? For example, instead of saying, what's a basis point? Instead of saying that, why don't you say, well, can you tell me how you see basis points working in this deal? How do you see this, right? What's your version of this? Because that implies that you know the answer and you really don't. You're just asking and you get their version of it. And then you kind of work from there. An example on this other deal, (laughs) the associate went off for a meeting, came back and says, we decided we're going to value these options based on the Black-Scholes model. And I'm a finance major. I studied that, right? And this guy did not. And I asked, I said, well, does everybody in the room, do they understand what the Black-Scholes model is? He goes, yeah, I think I did. Because the lawyer on the other side, he, he seemed to talk very confidently about it. So everybody was nodding their head. I said, okay, great. So the draft comes across and they misspell Black-Scholes. And I go to the associate. I said, well, does this give you any confidence that everyone knew what they were talking about? So the tip there for you and the junior lawyers is be curious and ask smart questions. Make it appear like you know what the answer is, but you're just getting their version. Because like I tell people all the time, the great thing about the law is that as in anything else in the gray area, right, there are many correct answers. There are many correct answers. So so the idea is you have to figure out which is the best answer and give the reason why. The people that I love negotiating with are those who say one thing and then you say, well, how about this or that? And they have no comeback for it because they haven't thought about it, right? They're really not intellectually curious. They just think because they said it, it's gospel. That doesn't work that way. What you're going to do 
and most of the listeners are going to do, you're going to make your money in the gray area, right? The black and white answers are easy. No one's going to pay these sky-high rates that we have for a black and white answer. That's taken care of by things called the Google or artificial intelligence later, right? It's all this stuff in the gray area where, what, what's the most important thing about the gray area, Jeannie? You need to be human. You need to be creative. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah. You need to be thoughtful, right? You need to be thorough, right? And you also need to be persuasive. Because an answer in the gray area, there's no right or wrong answer, right? There's no right or wrong answer. The most important thing is the ability to communicate your point and persuade the other side, whether it's internally or externally, right? So it's all about that stuff that they tell you in college and your liberal arts majors, right? It's critical thinking. It's good communication skills. It's being persuasive. So you're going to make your money in the gray area, and those are the skills you need. In fact, here, as you're starting out with your career, Jeannie, this is another thing I've come, uh, another principle I've come to the conclusion of, is that you get hired on the hard skill, but you get promoted on the soft skill. If you're an engineering major, you're always going to get an entry-level job. Always. You're an accounting major, you're always going to get an entry-level job. But what does it take to go beyond that? How do you go from being somebody on the line at Apple to being the next Steve Jobs? Okay, it's the soft skills. So you get hired on the hard skill, but you get promoted on the soft skill. An example of being having a strong sense of optimism and being good at deal making is uh, one time I had a client come to me and said, uh, he said, hey, we have this guy, his name is Joe. And Joe wants us to invest with him because he has some idea to start some company. Okay, that's literally the way it goes. My client says, would you mind talking to him and, and see what Joe has? Joe comes in and Joe is a great guy, very optimistic. He lays out the strategy of he's going to raise money. He's going to go back to, to China because he's a Chinese national. He went to Stanford for his MBA. He's going to raise some money, go back to China and buy a lot of these social media companies and see what sticks. And then we say, okay, great, great. So I go back to the client. I said, hey, guys, I met with Joe. He's a really nice guy, but you committed a fundamental mistake. They go, what's that? I said, well, you asked a lawyer to vet a business plan. It's not a good thing, all right? But I said, now that said, Joe is a very smart guy. He's energetic. He's creative. He's already started one business. He sold it. He's going to put his own money in. The problem is his business plan is nothing unique. There's nothing particularly earth-shattering about it. And even if it's successful, I don't see a whole lot of barriers to entry for competition. But sometimes you invest on the market or the opportunity, or sometimes you invest in the jockey. So I recommend it to the clients, let's invest in the jockey. So you fast forward 10, 11 years later, his company was taken public by J.P. Morgan as the Facebook of China at a $10 billion valuation. That's an example of having a strong sense of optimism to buy in or believe in your client's dream. 
So, Wilson, in addition to your leadership in the M&A world, you're also very involved in uh, NAPAPA. So that's the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association. So you founded NAPAPA's Partners Committee. You co-founded NAPAPA's Best Lawyers Under 40 Award. You're also behind NAPAPA's 20 by 20 program, which aimed for at least 20 general counsel within the Fortune 500. So can you tell us a bit more about the goals and substance of um, these programs and your involvement in NAPAPA more broadly? Sure, sure, Jeannie. My involvement in Napaba really is a, is a a close partnership with my what I call a partner in crime, Don Liu, who is the general counsel of of Target. A long time ago, we both saw the same thing, which was in the nineties. You had Asian Americans going big into law school, okay, and then you fast forward now, even at Harvard Law, I'd say probably your Asian American population is probably 12 percent. So you go in big in law school, and then they go into the best law schools, and they go into the best firms. So there are statistics that say that the um, Asian Americans make up over just over half of all minority associates on Wall Street. Yeah, it's great, 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 great. When you fast forward to how many of them make partner, it's a horrible ratio. In fact, Asian Americans crap out worse than any ethnic group. Don and I, and this is another example of silver lining, Don and I said, well, you know, that's bad, but there's also a silver lining because all these really smart people, they go in-house. So let's start a program. Let's have Napaba really cultivate and groom those in-house lawyers. And we come up with various programs, training and everything, but our latest one was this 20 by 20 program to get 20 APA GCs in the Fortune 500. That was tremendous success. Two years later, we were up to like 25 it, but the whole thing is, it wasn't really just focused at the top. It was really about building a very robust pipeline of some of the best talent in the country. That's what we really focus on. So it goes back to the optimism point. It goes back to the sunny side up. And it also goes back to helping others. I think if there's anything that uh, I like to do more than anything else is to help people. That really drives what I do. So this was my way of helping my friends, as well as a lot of people I don't know and who don't know me. That, to me, is success. In case the people on listening to this podcast can't tell, I'm Asian. And I also think about the bamboo ceiling a lot, that I'm very, I, I guess, hireable at the junior level. But I really do expect that at some point I'm going to hit that ceiling. And I think part of it is also kind of the way I look because I am a, quote, small Asian woman. I'm literally like five feet tall and like 100 pounds. So so I, I think that I, I struggle with like being seen sometimes. I think when people see my resume and they've seen my resume, it's like they take me a bit more seriously. But when I step into a room, I tend to get ignored. Right. So <laughs> I'm just being yes, real. Been there, done just, that. just yes. going to be real here. So what? advice would you give me? I, I know I'm being really selfish here because I'm asking for personal career advice, but I figured if I want to know it, I guess other Asian, Asian-American listeners would also find this helpful. So so what career advice would you give me? You talk about your that you look really good on paper, but then when you're in person, you, you feel like you're kind of not seen or ignored. The really important thing is you really need to work on, in my opinion, being better in person than you are in, on paper. So what does that mean for an Asian American woman? I recommend you do this. Just Google Asian stereotypes, right? You see all that and you say, that's not me. I'm not that. I'm not this. But you have to understand when you walk in that door of that conference room or whatever, 
That's all people see. So you have to ask yourself, what do I need to do to lean into the positive stereotypes and what do I need to do to break the negative stereotypes? For example, here you are, you're in a conference room, there's 20-something people, you don't say anything, you're going to be immediately pasted as the passive Asian. Going back to one of my uh, earlier, right? Well, maybe you don't have to say something or make a statement, but can you ask a really smart question? Just be engaged, be there. And then it, even physically, think about this physically, instead of sitting in the back of your chair, sit in the front of your chair, lean into it. But just know that you have positive stereotypes. Everybody, I don't care if you're Asian American or whatever, there are positive stereotypes, there are negative stereotypes. You need to understand that that's the way people are going to judge you. I'm sorry, it just happens. I know when people say, you're judging me, you can't judge me. I say, I'm sorry, it happens, right? Figure out what those stereotypes are. Take advantage of the positive ones. Learn how to break the negative ones. Take advantage of Asian American. Okay, we have the stereotype. Oh, you're smart, you're hardworking. There's nothing wrong with that. But like I say, I guess you're too young to, uh, did you ever watch Harold and Kumar? I watched the one where they went to White Castle. Okay, okay. That, that, the very first one was Harold and Kumar. So Harold was the Korean-American investment banker, always working hard and everything. And then you had a couple of his, his colleagues, uh, they're Caucasian kids. And they said, well, we're going to go off to the, uh, we're going to go play golf with, with the boss. And by the way, can you do this report for us? Well, obviously, Harold's going to do a fantastic job on the report, but who's going to get promoted? The guys playing golf. <laughs> the guys playing golf. The, the people with the soft skills. Okay. So for an Asian American, I would, or anybody, look, Harvard Law School, you're in with a bunch of really, really smart people, the smartest around, right? You have to understand there are only, meritocracy will only get you so far. Meritocracy will get you through the door. The soft skills, like I said, will get you promoted, right? Instead of staying at your desk all the time, walk around, talk to people, invite people to lunch, right? Create those connections that are important because if you're in the law firm environment, Jeannie, or anywhere else, you got to have someone who's going to be your champion or several people are going to be your champion, right? And by the way, I'm not a believer in these assigned mentor programs because I'm one of these people that say, you can't pick my friends. You just can't. But you pick your friends and you get to know the people who you can depend on to be your champions in the room when the partners are evaluating your performance. If you don't have someone saying, Jeannie's doing a fantastic job or singing your praises, you're going to be in trouble. So you have to get away from your desk and get out there, talk to people. You know how they, people say, keep your head down and just do, do hard work? At some point, keeping your head down your desk is going to turn into your chopping block. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and one other thing about uh, how do you break the bamboo ceiling. This is really advice for everybody. Here's the dadism, okay? Here's the dadism. Don't let others put you into their box. I'll give you an example. Not this law firm, but one of my prior law firms and guy comes down from the management committee and he said, hey, a year-end review type thing. He says, hey, Wilson, you know, just wanted you to know the management committee thinks you're doing great. Everything's doing fantastic. We just wanted you to uh, improve on one thing. I said, well, great. Well, tell me what it is. And he says, well, we think you kid around too much. You need to be more serious. This came from on high, right? And it was said with the best of intentions. 
But as you can tell, my personality is not exactly try to be the most serious guy in the room. So you know what I told that partner? I said, thank you very much. It's point well taken. But let me just tell you that people who like me are my clients and people who don't like me can be your clients. <laughs> the bottom line there is, what, what is it, Jeannie? It's about being authentic. If I did this 20 years ago and I listened I, and became a, a boring stiff like this guy, and I look up, how happy would I be of myself, right? What kind of environment am I creating if I'm walking around being Eeyore? Because someone told me that's the way you should be, a humorless, soul-sucking person. So really the advice there in the long run is be authentic. And I really think that when you are truly yourself, you won't be for everyone, but the people who love you will really love you. Exactly, G. You cannot please everyone. And just like the song says, you got to please yourself. No, you know, don't be a selfish pig or anything, but you need to be really serious. I, I tell the clients all the time. I say, hey, look, one of, I think, my strengths, I've been told this by clients, is just being able to bring a sense of calm or levity to the situation. We had, we had a deal where a client, you know, this is one of these deal or no deal situations and buyers in one side, one room, we're in the other room and the CEO's all worried and everything. And it got really tense in there. So I, I pulled out from my briefcase. I said, well, here, what we need is a quote from this book I'm reading. You go, what's that? It goes, well, it's leadership secrets of Attila the Hun. You know, we joked around a little bit and then it's starting to take the pressure off, cut the stress. And then finally I said, I said to the CEO, I put a dollar down, slammed it on the table. I said, I got one buck that they're going to come back our way. All right, put it right down there. And the CEO goes, I'll take that bet. So he took the other side of the bet. Eventually, everything worked out. We got the deal done. Later, the CEO came back to me and thanked me for bringing some levity to the situation, looking at the bright side, being the hopefully a little bit more of a sunny side up attitude, but really being authentic. All right. So, Wilson, we are running out of time. Thank you so much. I have one final question to wrap up, which is, is there anything that we've missed in this interview that you really want to say to the pre-law and law school students who are listening to this? You want to hear about my biggest career fail? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This this is in the 90s, and I was uh, I was working with the Hunt family, which is one of the big Texas oil families, right? And I was helping with the private equity investments. And the main Hunt guy that was on the deal, Al, he calls me and he says, hey, Wilson, the Hunt family and the Bass family, we just uh, invested in this kind of newish private equity group. And I think you'll be fantastic for this. We work together. I like what you do. I think you'll be perfect. I've already talked to the people and everything's lined up. All you have to do is call this one person in San Francisco, they're ready to go and just talk to them. Again, we think you'll be perfect about it. I said, well, great. Thanks very much, Al. That You're really great. And I said, hey, Al, by the way, what's the name of this private equity fund? And he says, we'll start off calling it Texas Pacific Group. So long story short, I didn't want to move to San Francisco. That was such a big career fail that it was repressed in my memory until about two years ago when I was in a meeting and it just dawned on me, I said, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) 
go, I can't believe that. It was, it was obviously so painful that my only defense was to suppress it. But the lesson there is don't be afraid of new opportunities, number one. But more importantly, don't be afraid to move for an opportunity. That was the real thing. You know, I grew up in Dallas and you know, I think I'm a Dallas kid. The thought of going to San Francisco, just, you know, just, I was going, ah. Nowadays, I say, heck yeah, if you pay me, I'll go to San Francisco. Let's say I was small-minded back then. My suggestion to you as well as the, the, the other students is be open-minded about opportunities, whether it's in the law, outside of the law. Be open-minded to moving different locations. Those are the opportunities. So if you're open-minded about that, that's really going to open up your opportunities. Again, on the authenticity side, Jeannie, be authentic. Know what makes you happy. If you think that you're more entrepreneurial, that makes you happy, just know that, in my opinion, being in big law is not the best place to chase your entrepreneurial dreams. But on the other hand, Big Law is a fantastic place from which to chase your entrepreneurial dreams. Nothing can beat the education you're getting, the experience that you and your colleagues are going to get in in Big Law. But be true to yourself. Know what makes you happy. And don't be afraid to take some leaps. Wilson, thank you so, so much. (laughs) You're welcome, GD. It's my pleasure. Oh, by the way, one other thing I forgot to mention. This is pretty ironic that I'm doing a podcast for the Harvard Association of Law and Business because if you think about it, the only time I ever heard from Harvard Law was when I was applying for law school, and it was a preemptive letter that said, don't bother. (laughs) I really think that the admissions office looks for people like you. And I know this is ridiculous to say now, but that's sort of rule-breaking leadership. I I think that's what they love. You had a leadership question. We didn't get to it, but you asked, you know, when did I start thinking about it? Here's the thing. People, they really want leaders. They want leaders to step up. And it's up to you or whoever else, your colleagues, to assess the situation and step up. When I started the Texas Minority Council Program as one of the three founding co-chairs, we were a group of 30 people. Everyone's getting around, talking a lot of niceties, but no one was taking charge. So I took charge. Don't think that you're a petite Asian American woman and no one expects you to be a leader. Show that you're a leader. Do exactly what you're doing with this, right? You see Rita and I, we're always singing your praises. You're just a fireball. Okay? And you know why? Because you enjoy it. I am having a bit too much fun with my life. (laughs) Break all the rules. Just do whatever I want. (laughs) The other thing I would tell Harvard Law students... Always remember, hustle trumps pedigree. I really believe that. I really believe that because, I don't know, I feel like I've been working hard way before I got any sort of pedigree in my life. (laughs) And that's the best thing, right? Because you're basically saying that you take initiative, you're hungry. So what do I tell people? Just three things, right? Stay curious, stay hungry, stay helpful. Simple recipe, Jeannie. And you're doing exactly that. You're helping a lot of people. You're doing what you like. That's rewarding in and of itself. Thank you for listening to the Health Leadership Podcast. 
Once again, I'm a Harvard Law School student, HAL board member, and your host, Genevieve Antono. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a rating and a comment review. We really want to hear your feedback. And let's also continue this conversation on social media, especially Instagram. Our podcast handle is at HALB Leadership. That is at H-A-L-B Leadership. And our wider student organization is at HARV Law Biz. That is at H-A-R-V-L-A-W-B-I-Z. So we'll see you there. And we'll see you next time on the HALB Leadership Podcast. Bye-bye.